You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. If you can get out your Bibles or open them or unlock them uh, and turn to Psalm 19. We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms. And I've been looking forward to studying this one for a long time. It's one of my favorites, Psalm 19. But I'll tell you, it's not just one of my favorites. It was C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm. Now, I don't know about you, but if it's the favorite of C.S. Lewis, that says a lot. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Also, this is one of my favorites because a professor in a class used it to teach me probably the greatest lesson anyone has ever taught me about the Word of God, about the Scriptures. Now, I'll tell you what he did. He had, we walked in, he had one of these. He had a honey bear, and he had, we had a, he had a napkin at every seat, and he walked around, and he put a dab of honey on everyone's seat. And then he said, here's what I want everyone to do. I want everyone to get a little bit of this honey on your finger and eat it. He said, that's what God's word tastes like. That is what God's word tastes like. To which I thought, huh? (laughs) See, I wasn't used to those kind of lessons about the Bible. I was used to the kind of left brain, Western definitions. You know, the Bible is inerrant in its original language. It's uh, authoritative. It's 66 books with three languages. It's best understood through a historical, grammatical hermeneutic. Words with lots of syllables. That's what I was used to. But this guy wanted us to know, no, no, no. The Psalm 19 says that God's word is sweeter than honey. Now, I felt like I have to have a caveat. Probably some of you guys don't like honey. Because, you know, we we got all kind of sweet stuff. We got ice cream. We got chocolate. We got all kind of sugary, processed, high fructose corn syrup stuff. Back in the ancient Near East, guys, they didn't have high fructose corn syrup, okay? So imagine you're just eating like wheat, and then there's this stuff, honey, that you just can't believe it exists because it is so sweet and so delicious. So back when the psalmist was writing, everyone, everyone who lived was kind of like Winnie the Pooh. You remember Winnie the Pooh? You may remember this incident that happened to Winnie the Pooh. Y'all, this is how much Winnie the Pooh loved honey. He went into Rabbit's home, came in the door just fine. Then he gorged himself on so much honey that when it was time to leave, he was too fat. He got stuck on the door on the way out. And the thing is, he wasn't really that worried about it. He just kept on eating honey. He's like, oh, well, this is my life now. At least I still have honey. That's how much he loved it. Honey is delicious to Winnie the Pooh. Now, most of us, the last way we would describe the law is with a word like delicious. Even if we appreciate it, even if we value it, listen, we may value its wisdom. We may uh, trust it for its truth that's in us. But for most of us, I think if we're honest, the Bible is more like medicine than honey. You know, we take it because it's good for us and we have to, but delicious? 
Recently in our home, we've been watching the College World Series because we're LSU fans and because LSU is awesome and they are dominating. And listen, y'all, the past, I see you shaking your head, Scott, okay? Well, everyone pray for Scott over there, okay? Y'all, there have been some amazing moments the past couple days. We hit a home run in, what, the 10th, 11th inning to end the game, in the semifinals to make it to the championship. And then just last night, the first game of the championship, again in the 11th inning, we hit a home run to win the game. Y'all, I'm throwing my hat. We're running around. We're high-fiving. It's amazing. We love it. You know what we've never done, though? I've never thrown my hat and high-fived and ran around my living room reading the rule book. <laughs> Getting out the baseball rule book and being like, oh, this is, have you read paragraph 3, page 97? Oh, wow, it's amazing. I love it. Is it really possible to love the law? For it to be delicious to us? Psalm 19 says it is, but if that's the case, then it's got to be something different than just the rule book, where I like the game, but I don't like the rules. And so that's what Psalm 19 is going to do. The writer is going to walk us through this process of how we come to love the law, how it becomes delicious to us. He's going to begin with what we see, then move to what we hear, and then move to what we say in response. And what we say by the time Psalm 19 is over is our big idea today. Wisdom is delicious. God's wisdom is delicious, like sweet honey. So let's read, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So verse 1 through 6 is all about what we see. And he says God's wisdom is clearly and continuously on display all around us through creation. So first he says it's constant. In verse 1, these words declare, proclaim, they're participles, meaning it's constant and ongoing. They keep on declaring, they keep on proclaiming. No one misses out. What are they declaring? What are they proclaiming? He says, the glory of God. Now, glory comes from this word that means weighty. It has weight. And we still sometimes talk about that way. If a person or an event is weighty, that means it's important. It is impactful. That's what he's communicating. But glory can also mean an outward display of someone's importance. So in Genesis 45, when Joseph, he's finally, he's a big deal in Egypt now, and he's finally reunited with his brothers. He tells his brothers, hey, you have to go. You must tell my father of my glory in all Egypt. He's saying there's evidence, my, my power, my importance is on display all throughout Egypt, and I want you to go tell my dad that. So creation reveals to us the knowledge of how weighty and how important God is. And then he says it, it displays God's handiwork. Now, this is a word you would use for an artist. So this is not brute force. This is a craft. This is 
uh, care, precision, intricacy. Creation is God's artwork, is what he's saying. And this knowledge of how God is an artist of his glory, he says it's revealed day and night. It's poured out with regular, regularity and consistency. This word poured out, it has this idea of overflowing. So you, you know what? You may try to avoid it. You may try to ignore it. You may try to hide it, but it just keeps coming out. You can't run from it. So it's constant. And then he says it's clear. Verse 3 and 4, he says it's clear. There's no language barrier. Creation is telling us something louder than words. Now, if you have ever had a parent or a spouse, you know what this is talking about. When he says there's no words, they can't communicate this. Because you have done something and you've looked at your parent or your spouse and they are giving you the look. They're not using words, but it is clear what they are communicating. And anyone, no matter what language they speak, would see that look and know exactly what they're saying. I'm not going to guess what the look you guys get is. Nor am I going to reveal what the look I get is. And then he says in verse, in verse 4 through the rest of verse 6, he gives us a picture, an illustration of what he's talking about, this communication that is louder than words. And it's the sun. He says the sun enjoys the skies and enjoys its journey through the skies as its God-given home. And so the picture is the sun, he's this strong, newlywed young athlete. Every day he leaves his bride's side at his home and he, and he goes out for his daily jog. Now one thing we have to understand is this is very different how every other religion at the time would have viewed the sun. Almost every pagan religion in the ancient Near East worshipped the sun. They saw the sun as a deity, as a god. And so uh, in Egypt it was the god Ra. And so you may remember one of the ten plagues was a plague of darkness. And that was a condemnation of them worshiping the sun. In Mesopotamia, the sun was Shamash. And he was supposed to be the one who grants you justice. But in the Bible, the sun is not a god. The sun points to God. The sun is a clear display of something bigger than itself, you see. Well, how does it do that? Simply by enjoying the path that the creator has laid in front of it. By doing what it was designed to do. That's, that's all it has to do. And by doing that, the psalmist says, nothing can hide from this wisdom. Nothing can hide from this revelation. All humanity sees it and feels it. So, creation gives constant, clear wisdom about God. But does that necessarily make wisdom delicious? I don't think it does. See, there's two things. There's two problems. Number one, creation can tell us about God's existence, but not about his nature necessarily. So this image of a sun uh, is a very relevant one for us here in Texas the past couple weeks, right? Y'all, if I described the sun the past two weeks, I would use the word oppressive. <laughs> and so if all you knew about God, all you knew about him was the sun, and you lived here in Tyler, Texas the past two weeks, you may think, well, that's what God is like. He's oppressive. You would have no idea that he's actually gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The sun doesn't necessarily tell you that. Secondly, creation is clouded by our sinful nature. So this is what Romans, the first three chapters of Romans is all about. 
It's all about a sinful response to revelation, to general revelation, which is what we call creation. And so he says everybody has some revelation of the truth, right? But what do we do with that part of the revelation of the truth we've received? Well, we twist it. We ignore it. We use it for selfish and prodigal purposes. So just because we know the truth doesn't mean we love the truth. Doesn't mean we use the truth properly. So Romans 1 through 3 is all about a fallen response to revealed truth. So if wisdom is actually going to become delicious to us, we need more. And the psalmist knows we need more. We need to deal with how we know God's nature and we need to deal with our sinful nature. So let's keep going. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. So verse 7 through 10 are all about what we hear. See, wisdom, he says, really only becomes delicious through the scriptures, through the written word of God. He gives us five labels for God's word. The law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, and the rules. And these are all kind of synonyms, but all a little bit differently, giving us different angles of the same thing, of the unified, put-together scriptures word of God in its totality. And he's saying, God comes closest to you. He comes closest to me in his written word. You may have noticed in your translation, the word Lord starts to appear and appears a lot in these verses. That's the translation of Yahweh, the personal covenant name for God. It's the God who is near. It's the God who marries himself to his people and enters into covenant with his people. He starts using that name because he's implying that God has drawn near to us in his written word. And he says each aspect of God's word, he's going to give us a truth and then an effect of that truth. So let's walk through them a little bit. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. That word perfect, it comes from the sacrificial system. It was a description of the the appropriate sacrificial animal. It was without defect. It was without blemish. And so the, the root idea is for it to be whole, complete, lacking nothing. It offers everything you need. It doesn't lack a thing. And this perfect law, he says, revives the soul. This word Reviving, it's it's the idea of reviving someone who is exhausted, exhausted by troubles in life. And you know, this can happen. Sometimes our, our souls, they experience a type of prolonged death. And we need somebody or something to do some CPR on us, to breathe some new life back into us. And he's saying, listen, in those moments, God's law is not something to dread. It is not a burden. It revives you. It can breathe life into you. So maybe you're here this morning and you have felt your soul is in need of some reviving. And the danger of our culture is there are a hundred different things you can look to to try to revive your soul. 
Many people can and will look to everything else except the word of God to breathe new life into their soul. Have you gone to God's word looking for life? Let me invite you to do it. Tony Evans said, a a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. I don't know, I've certainly found that to be true in my life. Next he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Now testimony, it's the same Hebrew word for the Ten Commandments. So he's talking about things like the Ten Commandments. And the effect of these is they make wise the simple. Now most people think the Ten Commandments is all about either avoiding punishment or making the grade. You know, it's kind of like God's test, and he's ready to write an F on your paper when you fail the test, or he's got his lightning bolt, he's ready to smite you when you break that commandment. But, you know, that's, that's not really the nature of these commandments at all. Recently, a couple weeks ago, I read an article about a man who broke a commandment. The article said, man who terrified passengers by opening aircraft door midair wanted to get off quickly. This happened in South Korea. The article goes on to say, the door of the jet opened as it was coming to land in Daegu, South Korea, leaving wind whipping through the plane's cabin as terrified passengers gripped their armrests. Video of the incident shows. An airline official said a man in his 30s was sitting in the emergency seat, seemed to have opened the door when the aircraft was about 700 feet above ground. He told police he wanted to be able to exit the plane quickly. Well, this man now will probably face 10 years in prison. Okay, so here's my question. He broke a law. He's going to prison. Why is it illegal to open the door of a plane while it is in mid-flight? Is it because the airline just wants to assert its authority over you? Is it because the airline is just waiting for you to fail so he can give you a bad grade? No. It's because there's this thing called the law of gravity. And it states, if you open the door, you will indeed exit quickly. But then you will go splat. So, okay. So, when the psalmist says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. He's saying it's like gravity. If you learn it, if you adhere to it, your life will be much better. That's why he says it is for the simple. Now, I know no one likes to think of themselves as simple. So let's just assume he's talking everyone else in here. Not you, okay? Everyone else. Let's do this for. Someone who is simple is someone who is naive. Someone who is oblivious to the dangers around them. Like a guy who thinks if I open this plane door 700 feet above ground, it will help me get off the plane faster. You don't really understand how this is going to play out. That's someone who's simple. Now that, that's an extreme example. We all sit down and we're like, well, I would never open the plane door 700 feet above ground. That doesn't mean we aren't simple. Haven't all of us, each and every one of us, done something that made perfect sense to us in the time and ended up making a total wreck of our lives? We've all done that. So the warnings of God, the the commandments of God, they're there to wise us up. They're there to alert us of the dangers that we are often blind to. And so God's law, like the law about not opening the plane door mid-flight, they give us stability. They give us safeguards that actually keep us from destruction. Listen, God is not trying to ruin your life. He's not trying to ruin your fun. He He actually loves you. 
He is trying to make wise the simple. Then he says his precepts are right. That word right is the word for a straight edge, like a a ruler or a measuring stick. It's the standard. It's how you know if something is crooked or straight. And the effect is it will rejoice the heart. It actually causes you to rejoice. Now imagine, some of you don't have to imagine because you're doing this. Imagine you're building a house. Okay, you're paying someone to build your house and moving day comes in and you come to find out that that builder didn't use a single straight edge, didn't use a single square, didn't use a ruler at all. He just eyeballed the whole thing. Well, you're going to walk in, what are you going to find? You're going to find everything's crooked. You're going to find there's a gap between the wall and the floor and that house will not stand for very long. It will crumble. Now, is that going to cause you rejoicing? No. But what if that house is built perfectly. Well, your delight, your will, joy will come when you see this perfectly built house and your joy will continue every day as that house remains firm and solid. See, it's the same with our lives. A life without a standard is chaos. The delight comes when you actually know what is straight and what is crooked and now you're ready to build something. Now you're ready to build a life. And so in this way, the standards of God, they're not a burden. They are a blessing. He says next in verse 9, he talks about the rules of the Lord. Rules. Oh, no, not rules. Now, surely that has to be bad. What he's doing here, he's moving from the general to the specific. So this word rules, it's like the rulings of a judge. So when a judge issues a ruling, what he's doing, he's taking a a general law and he's applying it to this specific situation. And the effect is they are true and righteous altogether. He's saying God is meticulous. His word is true in the minute details of life. Well, how many? Each and every one of them. All of them. And that means we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, I really like God's rules here, but over here that seems outdated. No, no, no. It is a total package. They all come together. And then in verse 10, the psalmist David, he he tells us the whole purpose of this, what he's been driving towards. See, he's been building for us, he's been painting for us a picture of God's word. It's true, it's reliable, it's soul-renewing, it's life-preserving, joy-inducing, energy-giving, and he's done that so you will say exactly what he says in verse 10. It's more desirable than gold, it is more delicious than honey. He's talking about its value to you, Man, it is more valuable than the most precious material on earth. And he's talking about its enjoyment to you. It is delicious, more delicious than honey. Your translation probably uses the the verb desired in verse 10. But some translations actually use the more accurate translation, which is covet. Covet. It's the same word that's used in the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. It's the same word that is used when Eve coveted the fruit of the tree. It's like, it's like the psalmist saying, you know, all of our coveting is not bad. It's just misdirected. He's telling us there is this holy coveting. There is a pure desire that ought to consume us like Winnie the Pooh. Not for gold or riches or honey, but for the word of God. I read about one man who 
coveted God's word. A guy named William Tyndale. Now he's famous for being the first man to translate the Bible into English. English so that everyone could read. And for that, he was martyred. He was, uh, he was strangled and then he was burned at the stake. But before that happened, he went on the run. He fled to Brussels. He was on the run for a while, but then they found him and they put him in prison for over a year. He just sat in a cold, dark prison. I want to read for you part of the letter he wrote to the man who was in charge of the prison. Listen to what William Tyndale asked for. He, he writes, I entreat your lordship and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during the winter, you will requ request the procurer to be kind enough to send for me for my goods, which he has in his possession, a warmer cap. For I suffer extremely from cold in the head. A warmer coat also, for that which I have is very thin. I wish also his permission to have a lamp in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Bible. Like you covet a coat in a cold winter on a stone floor. Like a light in total darkness. That is how we covet God's word. Del Ralph Davis said it this way in summarizing the 19th Psalm. If the God who has quietly spoken his cosmic word has stooped to speak clearly in the pronouns, participles, adverbs, and verbs of his Torah, surely I should meet such godly grammar with an answering obsession. Surely his excellent word must be met by my unrelenting appetite. Do you have that appetite for God's word? Hey, being honest, I usually don't. I often don't. And so the question comes, why not? Why don't we? Well, remember, we said we, we really needed two things for wisdom to be delicious to us. We, we needed to know God's nature, and his written word tells us that. So we have that, but now we have to also deal with our sinful nature. So you can say it's all well and good that God's commandments are so perfect, so amazing, so sure. But that doesn't necessarily make them delicious to me. To be delicious to me, they have to match my appetite, don't they? C.S. Lewis wrote about this and he compared it to being like a starving beggar. So a starving beggar, he may see this delicious piece of bread through the window and he may know that he can sneak in and steal it and appease his appetite. But you know what? He may not do it because the law says not to. He may follow the law. But what is the law to him in that moment? The law is an oppressor. The law is a burden. The law is what's preventing him from what he really craves. And so his appetites are leading him contrary to the law, not toward the law. And so C.S. Lewis said, at best, the law can be like the dentist's forceps. Now, y'all, I can't think of anything less pleasant than the dentist's forceps. God's law may be perfect, but I often have appetites that make the law a burden. And so we need more. And the psalmist knows we need more. So let's read how he closes. Verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. 
Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So these last verses are all about what we say in response to the word of God. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer for forgiveness and acceptance. He's worried about something. In verse 12, what's he worried about? He's worried about his hidden sins. He's not talking about hidden from other people. He's talking about hidden from himself. See, most, most of us think, hey, I know my own faults. I know my own sins. But the truth is, you have no idea how really sinful you are. Isn't it true that all of us at times can be baffled by our sin? You do stuff and you're like, why, why do I do that? I don't want to do that. Why am I doing that? Isn't it also true that all of us have blind spots, things that are crystal clear to other people and yet we're not aware of? And that's why God gives you siblings and in-laws. You know, they're happy to point those out to you. What does he ask for? He asks for pardon. He says, declare me innocent. He says, I want to be cleared of all charges. Next, he prays for his willful sins. Now, these are deliberate, eyes wide open sins committed out of pride. Some come out of defiance. I want what I want. No one's going to stop me. Some come out of doubt. I think I know better than you. Or I'm not really sure you, you want what's best for me. You're looking out for me. Think of the snake in the garden. Did God really, did he really say? And doesn't he maybe just not want you to enjoy, like this is probably the best fruit and he just don't want you to enjoy it. Or maybe he doesn't want you to be as powerful as he is. I, I, think, I think he's holding out on you. What does he pray for when it comes to these willful sins. He prays for protection. Don't let them have dominion over me. He's saying, don't let them rule over me. Don't let me be enslaved to it, God. Now, so far, I don't know about you, this doesn't sound like the prayer of someone who's rejoicing over God's life. He sounds desperate. He sounds dejected. He sounds burdened. Until you get to verse 14. And verse 14 is where it gets delicious. Because he says two things. Two things can change to make God's wisdom delicious to you. And this is the application. This is what we all have to do. Two things. Number one, you have to change your relationship to God. You have to change your relationship to God. Notice in verse 14, he has a desire to please, not a book, not words on a page. He has a desire to please a person. That word pleasing, it also comes from the sacrificial system where, uh, you know, they'd have meat on the grill or they've had these incense and these other aromas that you could smell. And the picture was this aroma went up to God and it was a pleasing aroma to him. And so as soon as he says this, as soon as he talks about being pleasing, he has switched from talking about the law to talking about relationship. See, the law, it turns out, just like the sun is meant to point to its author. It's meant to, to lead us beyond itself. And so he says, here's my, redemption, my relationship to God. He is my rock and redeemer. That is how my relationship with God has changed. He's my rock. That means fortress, protection. It's a place to flee and be protected from your enemies because your enemies can't get into the fortress. You remember what he prayed for 
When it came to his willful sins, he prayed for protection. And so now he says, who is going to protect me from the power of sin in my life? God, my rock. God, my fortress. That's who. Next he says, God is his redeemer. It's a, it's a legal image. It's someone who pardons. It was usually used of a family member who bought someone else who, out of slavery, who had sold themselves into slavery. And so when that redeemer paid for your freedom, you were pardoned from the debt you owed that master and you were no longer enslaved. You remember what he prayed for when it came to his hidden sins? He prayed for pardon. He said, who can grant my pardon? And now he answers, God, my redeemer. He will grant my pardon. And then the question becomes, but how? I mean, if God's word is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous altogether, how can he just set it aside? Does God just say, oh, never mind about all that. Never mind about all that law. No. No, the only way for you to have a relationship with the author of the law is for Jesus to be your rock and redeemer. Galatians 4, 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He's saying Jesus was born under all the commandments, all the expectations of the law as us. And the Bible says he completely fulfilled it. Every word of his mouth, every meditation of his heart was perfect. Everything you do wrong, Jesus did right. And then the Bible says, you get not your righteousness, you get his righteousness. And the Bible uses a couple illustrations for this. One of them is clothes. We all got dressed this morning. Thank you very much for doing that. We get to put on Jesus. We get to clothe ourselves with Jesus. So when the law comes and looks at us, it sees him and his perfect righteousness. It also uses a banking analogy. All of us are bankrupt when it comes to the law. That check is going to bounce if we try to write it. But all of his righteousness gets accredited to us. It gets put in our account. And we can start writing checks left and right. we got unlimited funds. Jesus becomes your rock, your fortress, your safe place from the demands of the law. So when the enemy comes with his accusations, when he says, you know, you know, the words of your mouth, the meditations of your heart are not pleasing to God. You can say, I know, isn't it crazy? <laughs> but I've taken refuge in his righteousness, not my own. The next verse, Galatians 4 verse 5 says this. It says, God did this to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's saying Jesus is your redeemer. Because his death paid your debt and redeemed you, you are no longer someone else's slave. You are his son. So when the accuser comes and he points out all your hidden and all your willful sins, Jesus interrupts. He says, wait a minute, I was pierced for those transgressions. I was crushed for each and every one of those iniquities. The law has been fully satisfied. See, men and women, wisdom will never be delicious to you as long as it's just words on a page. You have to have a relationship with the author. And because of Jesus, you can. And once you've changed your relationship with God, now you're ready for the next step. You can change your relationship to the law. You can change your relationship 
to the law. See, without a relationship with God, the law is an oppressor. It's like a, he's impossible to please. He's like a strict teacher with a red ink pen full of ink, ready to just mark up your paper. But when Jesus is your rock and your redeemer, you can be like the sun. The sun in the sky. Remember from verse 5? It's like a groom on his wedding day, like an athlete on game day. See, y'all, the sun is not some joyless legalist that wakes up every morning like, oh, I got to go across the sky again. Man, this law is so demanding. No, no, no. It lives in joy. It lives in eagerness. It loves the path that God has set out before it. So to the son, the law of God is not oppressive. It's not rules. It's not a test. It is God's gift. It is delicious. And so just as the son joyfully follows the path that God has laid out for it, so you and I. The law is the path that we joyfully follow, that God has in his love and his grace laid out for his sons and his daughters, those who have a new relationship with him. And there's one more thing. And like the son, you can declare the glory of God. See, God's law, it's no longer a way for you to just achieve something or a way for you to just measure up to something. It is a way for you to display the glory of God. It is a way for you to point to something bigger than yourself. See, God's glory, it most brightly shines, not when the sun moves across the sky, but when a redeemed sinner says, God's God's wisdom is delicious and it is more valuable to me than gold. So here's what I want you to do this week. Have a little homework for each and every one of you. I don't want you to literally do this. I want you to sit down. Sit down maybe with one of these, maybe with a honey bear. Or maybe some Andes. Maybe a chocolate bar. I don't know. Something delicious. Sit down with that and with the Bible right next to you. I want you to take a bite of whatever that delicious thing is. And I want you to tell yourself, because of Jesus, this is what the law of God tastes like. And then I want you to open that Bible, the perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous Word of God, and I want you to enjoy it. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.